And uh, I don't normally uh, launch the month of December uh, with a Christmas sermon, but I thought this year, why not? And uh, we're not a church necessarily that celebrates Advent, uh, which simply means coming, right? The anticipation of something that we've waited a long time for, but that's what the Advent season uh, uh, stands for, represents, obviously the coming of Christ in anticipation of Christ's not just first coming, but also his second coming. So I thought this would be good for us as as we've already mentioned this morning, it is so easily, uh, it's so easy to be distracted uh, during the Christmas holidays by so many other things. Uh, it seems like a very busy, hectic time of year for all of us, and Christ somehow gets uh, lost in it all, that maybe if we uh, set our focus and fixed our eyes on Jesus right at the beginning of the month, uh, hopefully we can stay focused on him throughout all the chaos that's about to ensue and so I want to encourage you to take your Bibles uh, and t- turn them to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. And I want to look at one verse this morning that I think uh, really uh, is, is chock full of meaning when it comes to the whole idea of Emmanuel and God with us. What does this actually mean? And again, it's a familiar verse, I'm sure, to most of you. But let me read it for you, I'll pray, and then we'll talk about it. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. The prophet Isaiah writes, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. Father, we're so grateful that we have your word that instructs us and reminds us of what this season uh, of Christmas is really all about. And as we look a little bit this morning into your word, old and both Old and New Testament, that you would excite us about who Jesus is and the impact that he's had on each of our lives, or at least the, and also the impact he could have in our lives for those who may be here who have yet to commit their lives to follow him. Pray that you would open up our ears to hear, our eyes to see, and uh, that your spirit would help us to understand this text and make application of it in our lives today. We pray this for your glory. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, having a baby is one of life's greatest joys, is it not? Those of you that have had uh, the joy of having children, uh, one of the most enjoyable and, and sometimes most challenging things about having a baby is choosing a name. When Kelly and I had our first child, the internet as we know it today was not yet in existence. Yes, we're officially old. And so we did what a lot of couples did back then. We bought a baby name book. How many of you guys, let's admit, who had a baby name book? Okay, some of the older folks here, and right? We all had the baby name book. And uh, to help us come up with the perfect name for our kid. The book provided the origins, the definitions, the variations of virtually every name imaginable. And so with the help of the book, along with many discussions and funny experiences, Kelly and I were able to whittle down our list and finally agree on names for our three children. Um, I remember one time we were discussing uh, for our first child, for 
Zach, uh, one of the names we had picked, or at least that I had suggested, was Noah. I just thought that was a cool name, and my wife was, like, not into it. And so I was always just kind of always appealing. Come on, Noah. It's really cool. It's got a great sound to it. It's a great name. He was a great man. And so we're driving home from church one day up the freeway, and I saw a license plate that said Noah on it. And I said, "Hun, look, this is a, a sign from the Lord. He's telling us that we need to name our first son Noah. And so we happened to pass by this car, and we pulled up next to it, and there was this old man driving in his car like this. And uh, that kind of wrecked it. That was the, the nail in the coffin for Noah, for Kelly. So you finally said, no way, honey. See, that's why I don't want to call our son Noah. That's what comes to mind, some old guy, you know. So Zachariah was almost Addison, believe it or not. Uh, it was kind of a Puritan name we, we kind of liked. I always wanted a daughter named Jessica because I did, thought the name Jesse was kind of cool. Have a little scrappy girl named Jesse, right? Uh, well, Kelly had, had her heart set on Hannah, and so she won on that one. Um, and we were still trying to decide what to call Jacob in the hospital after he was born, and they brought the paperwork in, and we had to sign something. We had to write something down. So we decided on Jacob. And without trying, we ended up doing the stereotypical pastor thing and giving all of our kids Bible names. It wasn't on purpose, trust me. Um, I'll never forget hearing the comedian Jeff Allen. Some of you may have heard him. He said, we give our three boys biblical names. The first two were real easy, Aaron and Jacob. The three-year-old, we finally settled on Satan. (laughs) So be careful when you choose your names for your kids, right? But in the premier Old Testament prophecy of the virgin birth of Christ, God himself chose the perfect name for his son. Just turn back a page there, if you're in Isaiah 9, to Isaiah 7, verse 14. Another familiar verse here, Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name what? Emmanuel. And then keep your finger there in Isaiah, and then flip over to Matthew chapter 1, and we see how this name was picked up in the New Testament to describe the birth of Christ. Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, and you could add in there Isaiah, verse 23, quotes Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. There's a lot of profound thoughts surrounding the birth of Christ, but in my opinion, that is the most profound thought. That that baby in the manger was God himself. 
John MacArthur has written a very helpful little book called The Gift of Christmas. And this is what he said, if we could condense all the truths of Christmas into three words, these would be the words, God with us. We tend to focus our attention at Christmas on the infancy of Christ, that cute little baby in the manger, right? But the greater truth of the holiday is his deity. More astonishing than a baby in the manger is the truth that this promised baby is the omnipotent creator of the heavens and the earth. Well, no other Old Testament prophecy of the coming of Christ reveals the truth of Christ's deity clearer than Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And in order to fully understand this verse and appreciate the important prophecy that Isaiah made here, uh, we need to understand the context in which it was given. So let me start by just giving you a brief historical background of the nation of Israel and where Isaiah's prophetic ministry fits into the big picture of God's dealing uh, with his people. Isaiah lived and ministered in and around Jerusalem for about 50 years during the days of the divided kingdom. So we're talking about 739 to 586 or 686, I should say, uh, B.C. Uh, After being ruled by three kings, Saul, David, and his son Solomon, the nation of Israel had internal conflict. They split into two factions. The ten northern tribes were ruled by Jeroboam. That was what was known as Israel. And the two southern tribes, ruled by Solomon's son Jeroboam, were referred to as Judah. The ten northern tribes disobeyed the Lord, and they were about to be destroyed by Assyria, which happened in 722 B.C., and just um, over 100 years later, the same fate would befall Judah when they were overrun by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. In the meantime, before this happened... God graciously sent multiple prophets to both Israel and Judah to warn them of the coming judgment because of their sinful rebellion and to call them to repent. And in view of the imminent judgment that was bearing down on Israel, God sent a man named Isaiah to warn Judah, and and namely her kings, to learn from the example of the ten northern tribes or they would suffer the same tragic outcome. And at the time... You wouldn't think there was any issues because Judah was prospering commercially, they were prospering militarily, but they were declining spiritually. The kings had led the people into idolatry, they had formed alliances with enemy nations, and in the midst of this spiritual compromise, God raised up Isaiah to proclaim a message that's mixed with both judgment and hope. And interspersed with the the warnings of God's impending wrath, were comforting promises of God's salvation through the coming of the Messiah. And Isaiah 9 is a a great example of this. And what we see in in verses 1 through 7 is amidst the the gathering thunderclouds of God's coming judgment, a ray of sunlight breaks through in the prophecy of a coming king who would bring with him a reign of joy and prosperity and peace. Notice how this chapter begins, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. Zebulun and Naphtali are the names of the two most northern tribes of Israel who were the first to experience the wrath of the Assyrian invasion. 
And he says, but later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan. The way of the sea is this major highway running through Palestine between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. And it was the, the, the route that the Assyrian soldiers took when they invaded uh, the northern kingdom. And he mentions Galilee of the Gentiles there at the end of verse 1 which obviously is the region surrounding the Sea of Galilee where Jesus grew up. He started his ministry there. Uh, the first area, this is ironic here, the first area to be judged by God was the first area to be blessed by the coming of the Messiah. Notice what it says in verse 2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. So for centuries, Gentile oppression would cast this dark shadow over the land of Palestine after these uh, invasions from both Assyria and Babylon, and the coming of Christ would pierce that darkness. In fact, this is the verse that is quoted in the Gospel of Matthew when Jesus uh, settled in Capernaum. In Matthew chapter 4, Verse 15, it says that Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee, and leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, that the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who were sitting in the darkness saw a great light, and those who were sitting in the land and the shadow of death upon them a light dawned. So already, before we even get to our key text in verse 6, we're seeing the obvious connection between this prophecy and Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ was clearly the fulfillment of all the prophetic verses and passages in the Old Testament about the Messiah. Notice verse 3, you shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness, they will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. So God was promising here that he would once again multiply the nation of Israel like the stars of the heaven and the, the sands of the seashore. That was the part of the Abrahamic covenant, if you remember back in Genesis 22, verse 17, that I will give you descendants that will be as plentiful as the stars in the heavens and the sands on the, on the shore. He will restore their joy like harvesters rejoicing as, as they bring in an abundant harvest or as warriors rejoicing as they divide the spoils of victory. And it says here, he'll remove the heavy yoke of slavery that had been placed upon them, that they had been carrying around. Sort of like the days of, of Judges when he used Gideon to deliver the nation from the Midianites with only 300 men. And so he was talking about this, this idea of you are under this burden, this oppression, and I will deliver you from that. Notice verse five, for every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be, far, but will be for burning fuel for fire. In other words, the, all the bloodstained clothes used for war will be burned up in the fire. Uh, in other words, there, there, was, there will be no longer, uh, it will be no longer necessary to war. 
These clothes won't, you won't need these kind of clothes. You won't need war clothes. Why? Because the Messiah will bring an end to war. He'll establish a reign of universal peace. And so here we have a reference, not just to the first coming of Christ, but the second coming of Christ. And whenever you look at Old Testament prophecy about the coming of Christ, you always have to look at it both near and far. There's always a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. And so it's like mountain peaks, right? You, you just look out and you see the mountain peak of the coming of Christ. And you're like, oh, that's really cool. We're going to have a Messiah coming. And you climb up that mountain peak and you get to the top and you're like, wow, the come, Christ has come. But then you look off into the horizon, there's another mountain peak that you didn't see before. That's the second coming of Christ. And so you have to keep those in perspective as you read through the Old Testament and, and, and anticipate the fulfillment of these prophecies. The question is, what will cause all these wonderful things that Isaiah is prophesying to occur? Well, the reason for this dramatic turn of events is the child that Isaiah first mentioned in chapter 7, verse 15. Or excuse me, verse 14. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. So Isaiah's initial prophecy about the birth of a child named Emmanuel comes to a magnificent climax here in the next verse, in verse 6, where he builds on his previous prophecy and elaborates on who this child would really be. Verse 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So he says a child will be born to us and a son will be given to us. Both of these phrases refer to the incarnation of Jesus Christ and they combine his humanity and also his deity. That it will be a child, a human child, but it will be a son, it will be God's son. And it says the government will rest on his shoulders. This child will be a righteous and just king who will reign over the nation of Israel and eventually all the nations of the world as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Look at verse seven. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. So this child... The Messiah will be a rightful heir to the Davidic throne on which he will reign for all eternity. We know about the Davidic covenant back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. David wanted to build a temple for the Lord, a house for the Lord, and God said that he couldn't because he was a man of bloodshed and he was, his son was going to be the one that, that uh, built that temple. But the consolation that God gave David was this, in in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, when your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, you will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And he says, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And if you remember... We just read in Luke chapter 1 when Gabriel came and announced to Mary that she would give birth to a child, this virgin mother. 
he quoted from 2 Samuel chapter 7. In Luke 1, verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus, and he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Again, you can't miss the connection that Jesus is the fulfillment of this uh, prophecy here in Isaiah chapter 9. Notice the last phrase of verse 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. We know zeal as, as passion, or in this context, perhaps jealousy. That God is extremely jealous for his glory and his people through whom he displays his glory. And so God's glory is wrapped up in his people. And that's why he's been so faithful to preserve the nation of Israel all these years in spite of all that they've endured. And his point is that his purposes will be accomplished through them no matter what. We are intrinsically linked to the nation of Israel as God's people, as believers today. God made a promise to David that he would have an heir reigning on his throne forever and he is passionate about making sure that happens. Now, back to verse six, sandwiched between these two statements about the powerful and peaceful and perpetual reign of this coming king, there are four royal names by which this child will be identified. And I think you know this to be true. Names in the Bible mean something. They're, they're, they're important, they're significant because they often indicate the kind of person that that child would be or they are symbolic of the special role that they would play in God's kingdom. And so these four descriptive titles here in verse six give us greater insight into this child who would be called Emmanuel, God with us. Who is this child really? What role will he play in God's kingdom? And you might expect here for Isaiah to have listed attributes of a child, right? It is, after all, a child he's announcing, the birth of a child, but he doesn't list attributes of a child. Instead, he listed attributes of God. And this is proof that the child named Emmanuel is truly God with us. That baby who was born was God himself, God in human form. E.J. Young has written a classic commentary on the book of Isaiah. And this is what he said very simply. He said, we are brought head on with God himself as we hear the names of this child. And so I want to just take a few minutes this morning and look at these four names. Because they, again, provide us insight into the divine nature of the Christ child. And through these four names, we're able to see and understand the true essence, the true nature of Jesus, of Christ. They also will help us to see and understand how Jesus Christ is clearly, obviously, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the fulfillment of this prophecy because he personified every one of these names during his life and ministry. So let's look at that first name. It says his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. 
And this is, I think this name highlights the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God. That word wonderful literally just means wonder. And the word generally was used in the Old Testament to describe wonders and, and miracles that, that God performed, like the plagues in Exodus chapter 3, or the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus 15, or the conquest of Canaan in Exodus 34, or the crossing over the Jordan River in Joshua chapter 3, verse 5, or, or the miracles that God performed in the wilderness in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 17. So we know about these wonders, these miraculous things that God accomplished. And throughout the Old Testament, God is praised and thanked for his many wonders. Let me read you a few examples of this. Job 37, verse 14. Listen to this, O Job. Stand and consider the wonders of God. The Psalms uh, mention the wonders of God. Psalm 9.1, I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. Uh, Psalm 26, verse 7. That I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving and declare all your wonders. Psalm 107, there's too many to choose from here, but I'll just read a few. Psalm 107, verse 24. They have seen the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. Psalm 139, verse 14, I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. Judges 13, 18, but the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, this is um, what, what uh, God said or Christ said, the pre-incarnate vision of Christ that the father of Samson saw. Why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? In other words, you're wondering what my name is? It's just, it's just wonderful. That's my name. And so again, E.J. Young here says that the Old Testament usage of this word compels us to the conclusion that it is here, it here designates the Messiah not merely as someone extraordinary, but as one who in his very person and being is a wonder. He is that which surpasses human thought and power. He is God himself. To designate the child with the word wonder is to make the clearest attestation of his deity. So he's called Wonderful Counselor. In other words, this child will have all the wisdom necessary to rule over all the nations of the world. Look at Isaiah 11. You're right there in the same neighborhood. Just turn to the right. Isaiah 11, verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, this child, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So unlike the rulers and the, the kings and presidents of this world, he, Christ is not going to need to surround himself with counselors and advisors. He doesn't need to appoint a cabinet, right, like Biden is appointing right now or that all of our presidents have has historically had. He doesn't need anybody. He knows everything that there is to know. And he always makes the, the right decision, the wisest choice and Isaiah went on to say how that others will marvel at his wisdom, his discernment. This is Isaiah chapter 28, verse 29. This also comes from the Lord of hosts, who has made his counsel wonderful and his wisdom great. 
And so this child will be called Wonderful Counselor because of his wisdom. And Jesus personified the wisdom of God. In the New Testament, we see this stated very clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Verse 30, but by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Whenever someone came to Jesus with a question or a problem, he, he always knew exactly what to say. He always knew exactly what to do. In fact, people were amazed by his wisdom. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 28. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. John chapter 7, verse 46. Something similar here. The officers answered, never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. So we know this based on what we read in the Gospels. Jesus knew everything. He knows everything, including you. He knows you personally. He knows your needs. He knows your hurts. He knows your pains. He knows your problems. He knows your dilemmas. And he will give you the wisdom and the counsel that you need to deal with all these hurts and pains and answer your questions and solve your problems if you're willing to ask him for wisdom. James 1.5, if anyone lacks wisdom, he should what? Ask of the Lord and he'll give it to him without finding fault. So we need to ask in faith and we need to follow his advice. Some of you know what God would have you do, what Christ has said for you to do, commanded you to do, but you don't follow his advice. He's not such a wonderful counselor to you because you're blowing him off. You're spurning his counsel. But he is the wonderful counselor. Secondly, it says he will be called mighty God. Mighty God. And here, I think the emphasis is on the power of God. That word mighty there is the word gibor in the Hebrew, which means hero. That he's a heroic God, not merely like God, but he is actually God. He is mighty God. He just says it. Wonderful counselor is kind of a veiled thing. You could apply that to anybody. Oh, he's a good counselor. Well, he's a really wonderful counselor. No, you can't mistake this one. Now, he is, this child will be called mighty God. He will be the omnipotent, supreme ruler who is able to save all those who trust in him. And a hero, this is the word for mighty here, a hero always comes through in the end. He ultimately prevails over the bad guys. Look at Isaiah 10, verse 21. You're right there. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. Jeremiah 32, again, just seeing all these, these expressions in, in the Old Testament, the mighty God, Jeremiah 32, verse 17. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. 
who shows loving kindness to thousands but repays the iniquity of fathers into the bosom of their children after them. O great and mighty God, the Lord of hosts is his name. And we know Jesus personified this, didn't he? Did he not? Matthew chapter 28, the Great Commission. Listen to what Jesus said. Matthew 28, verse 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them and saying, all authority or power has been given to me in heaven and on earth. In other words, I'm the ultimate authority. I have all power. Hebrews chapter one, verse three. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Talking about Christ here. And then in Revelation chapter one, verse eight, in that vivid description that John gave of his vision of Christ, he said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Jesus had the power to heal people, to cast out demons, to bring people back to life, to forgive their sin, to grant them eternal life. These were all displays of divine omnipotence. He had the power to totally transform people's lives, to liberate them from sin. Guess what? He can do the same for you. He has the power to transform your life, to free you from slavery to sin. And as believers, the, the power of Christ dwells within us to strengthen us and to sustain us. 2 Corinthians is a good example. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9, in the context of that thorn in the flesh that Paul begged God to take away. And in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power, my power, is perfected in your weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Colossians 1.29, Paul said he, he strived according to the strength that God gave him within him to do uh, the work of the ministry. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power which mightily works within me. So he is the mighty God. He's the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. Number three, he's the eternal father. The eternal father or the everlasting father. And here we have an emphasis on the eternality of God or the eternality of Christ, if you will. Literally, this phrase, eternal father, means the father of eternity. And again, he's describing who here? He's describing Jesus. And so this is where our head starts to hurt when we start to think about the Trinity because Jesus is the second member of the Trinity who existed in eternity past and stepped into time on that first Christmas night. Again, the, the Trinity is a, is a challenging concept, right? There's one God, and yet he exists in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In essence, they're all God. They all have the same attributes of God, including eternality. In other words, the Son didn't come into existence 2,000 years ago in Bethlehem. 
Micah makes that clear. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. In other words, this baby who was going to be born in Bethlehem didn't start in Bethlehem. He'd already been in existence from the days of eternity. So the Son eternally existed before the foundation of the earth. He was the one who created the earth, in fact. And he continues to sustain and care for the earth, the the world, like a father sustains and cares for his children. A loving, tender, compassionate provider and protector. Psalm 103, verse 13, is one expression of this fatherly nature of God. Psalm 103, verse 13. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. Again, Jesus personified the everlasting fatherly care of God. In fact, right out of the gate in the Gospel of John, John establishes the eternality of Christ. And, and by doing that, the deity of Christ, right? If, if, if he existed forever, if Jesus existed forever, that means he must be God. John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word referring to Jesus. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him and apart from him nothing came into being that has come into being. Again, we know in Hebrews 13, Hebrews 13 verse 8, Jesus Christ is the same, what? Yesterday, today, and forever. And in, in Revelation 1 8, we already read this. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And of course, throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus said that he was, is who? God. That's why they picked up stones to kill him, because he was making himself out to be God. He was calling himself the great I am, which means. Hey, who are you? Well, I am. In other words, I've always been and always will be. I am. I just am. I am. I'm there. I just exist. And he called himself. He took that, that sacred phrase that God introduced himself to Moses as in the burning bush, and he applied it to himself. Because he was the one who offers eternal life to all those who believe in him, all those who obey him, and he lovingly cares for us like a father who will provide and protect us forever. And then lastly, he's not only the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the eternal father, he's the prince of peace. He's the prince of peace. And I think here the emphasis is on the grace and mercy of God. He is the provider of peace, the bringer of peace, this is, by the way, is the, the first of 25, ref, 25 references to peace that I, Isaiah made in this book. Look at uh, chapter 11. Just turn there. You're right there close by, so you can turn there. Isaiah 11, verse 6. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, 
And the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little boy will lead them and the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like an ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What a vivid description of of the peace that is provided through Christ and that ultimately will uh, represent the end times. The second coming of Christ, this is what it will be like. I'll just say I'm playing with snakes though. Okay, I don't care. They're still gonna be bad in my book, but hey, they're not gonna hurt you anymore. So, so the Messiah, Jesus, initiated and will maintain this eternal peace unlike anything the world's ever known. Not, not just an absence of war here and, 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 or getting hurt or getting eaten alive by some ferocious animal or bit by a snake here. We're talking about peace with God, ultimately. Peace with God and peace with one another. And even peace for your own self, for your own heart and your own mind. Again, quoting from E.J. Young, the commentator on Isaiah, he said, this peace includes more than a temporary cessation of hostilities among nations. There must also be removed the cause of war, namely human sin. For human sin to be removed, however, there must be a state of peace between God and man. Not only must man be at peace with God, but what is more important, God must be at peace with man. The enmity which had existed between God and man must be removed. It was human sin which had kept God at enmity with man. When that sin has been removed, then there can be peace. Amen? So God is at enmity with us. It's not that we're just enemies of God. God is enemies with us. And yet while we were enemies, right, he demonstrated his love for us by sending his son to die to remove that which stood between us. That hindered our relationship. And again, Jesus personified this peace. We've been learning about it in John, or excuse me, in Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. How about Colossians chapter 1? I love this. Colossians chapter 1, verse 19. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. So this is talking about Jesus and everything that the Father was, the Son was. In other words, they're the same. Jesus is God. And through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross, through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although they were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death in order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So Jesus is the one who took Sin upon himself, he removes sin by taking on himself on the cross and then reconciling us to God. And at the end of the day, the reason why these four divine names apply to Jesus Christ is because he is who? God. 
He is all these things because all the fullness of deity dwells in him in bodily form. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. The whole book was written, that letter was written to exalt Christ. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And then, of course, in John's gospel, John was emphasizing the deity of Christ from the get-go, and in John chapter 1, verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then it says this, no one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. In other words, what you see in Jesus is who God is. Jesus explained to us who God is because Jesus is God. You know, as we consider this year, 2020, and how crazy it's been for all of us, consider what it is that people need and desire most. What was it that people have needed and desired most? Wisdom and direction. Energy and strength and stamina, provision, protection, and peace with God, peace with others, peace in their own heart and mind. Well, guess what? God provides all these things through a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ counsels us. He's the wonderful counselor. He strengthens us. He's the mighty God. He cares for us. He's the everlasting Father. He gives us peace. He's the Prince of Peace. Jesus is all these things and more. Why is this verse so important? Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. Why are these four names so important? Well, as E.J. Young said, they are a healing bomb in which the Christian soul will find comfort and strength throughout time and eternity. Father, we thank you for this simple verse and these four simple descriptive titles for Jesus. And they do soothe our soul this morning in light of all that we've been experiencing this past year and as we look forward to the hope, the thrill of hope of the coming of Jesus. We're a part of a weary world right now that wants to rejoice. We're looking for something to to find joy and peace and hope in and we know that Jesus is that, that thing, that one. And so would you use this message this morning to comfort, to strengthen And perhaps even confront and convict anyone who's here that is not a follower of Jesus. That they would see that he's everything that they've been longing for. He's everything that they need. And that you would grant them repentance today. That they would turn away from their life of sin and they would place their faith alone in Jesus and commit their life to follow and obey him from this day forward. That they could experience all that Jesus 
uh, is, all that he does. Lord, we're thankful that we have something good to look forward to, not just at the end of this month, but for all eternity. Thank you for the hope and the peace that we have in Christ. We pray this in his name, amen.